You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. Now, this week, we'll take a look at the top priority. What should it be for the CDC? Job one just might be regaining the public trust. There is a race among workaholics, and women are starting to gain some ground. We're going to look at why. And we'll take a look at the latest trendy neighborhood. It used to just be called Wall Street. Let's get started. We begin with a focus on oil and whether the past week changes the narrative in a significant way. After the White House announced last fall, it would refill the Strategic Petroleum Reserve at specific oil prices. President Biden making that announcement. The United States government is going to purchase oil to refill the Strategic Petroleum Reserve when prices fall to $70 a barrel. <clears throat> that means oil companies can invest to ramp up production now. With confidence, they'll be able to sell their oil to us at that price in the future, $70. But it didn't happen, and prices are going up again. So what did happen? Let's bring in Bloomberg Opinion columnist Liam Denning. He covers energy and commodities. We can start with the surprise cut that OPEC announced this past week, Liam. How does that change things? Well, it changes things immediately just in terms of the oil price. Um, you know, it was it was kind of ironic that uh, the, the OPEC supply cut was accompanied by a statement talking about preserving the stability of the market. And then the very next thing that happens is an 8% jump that day in the oil price. Um, OPEC's uh, idea of price stability, of course, tends to err on the side of those prices going up rather than down. Um, and I think it may cause some additional problems uh, for the Biden administration um, but also uh, for the Fed and other central banks, because the uh, the weakness in oil prices has obviously been um, useful for them as they contemplate, you know, on the one hand, uh, raising rates further to combat inflation, but also on the other, mindful of the fact that we've just gone through um, uh, an acute banking crisis, uh, which uh, which still doesn't seem quite settled just yet. Since the White House did make the announcement that the SPR would be replenished and it hasn't happened yet, it's been a lot of ups and downs. Walk us through that. Yeah. So what happened was obviously last year we had the uh, the Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine. Oil prices spiked. Uh, U.S. gasoline prices got to their highest level ever last June, um, averaging more than five bucks a gallon for the first time. Um, and in response, uh, President Joe Biden authorized drawing down 180 million barrels uh, from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. In October, uh, the administration announced a plan to replenish the SPR, but in a slightly different way from what um, we've been used to. They said, um, you know, our plan is to basically start replenishing the SPR. Uh, once oil falls into a range, and their words were around $69 to $72 per barrel. Um, now, what has happened since then? A couple of things have happened. One is, in effect, we have actually replaced about three quarters of that 180 million barrels through a sort of congressional sleight of hand. Basically, future sales that were mandated by Congress um, got taken out um, under 
legislation. And so that has net net replaced a lot of those barrels. However, there's still 40 million barrels outstanding. Uh, and that will rise to more than 60 million barrels because we still have some congressionally mandated sales happening this year. But the other big thing that's happened is that effectively the administration has just not really shown any kind of commitment to that to that process. And, and that strikes me as quite odd uh, in, in a couple of ways. Um, politically, why come out and say it if you don't really plan on following it up? You're just kind of creating a hurdle for yourself that you then fail to clear. Um, but secondly, for the oil market, um, the whole idea of this was to do two things. One was it was to sort of legitimize drawing down oil from the SPR because the government was effectively saying, look, if oil prices get too high, we are going to release barrels from the SPR to, to, to dent the economic impact. On the other hand, if oil prices get too low, below that 69 to 72 range, we will step in and start buying barrels for the SPR, which if you think about it, is kind of an olive branch to the oil industry. It's saying, look, prices fall too much, we're gonna help you out. You can go out and drill with confidence. Um, it's, and it's kind of balancing that green agenda on the one hand for Biden, but also the need to balance it with energy security. But since then, we've seen advisors like Amos Hochstein, um, you know, kind of attaching conditions. And then when we saw oil prices really drop in the wake of Silicon Valley Bank failing, we didn't really see the government move. You write in your column that the U.S. has essentially swung from being this huge net importer of oil to a net exporter, usefully repurposing a critical piece of public infrastructure. But then, as you said, the administration attached that new condition and kind of brought everything to a standstill. What did it do? Well, you're, you're right. Um, now that the U.S. is a net exporter of oil, I think the administration quite rightly said, look, the main the main threat to us from oil these days is less that we get a cutoff and we actually run out of oil. It's more what are the economic impacts of high oil prices if, if someone like Russia um, does something disruptive. The problem is by, 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 by going out there and saying when oil falls into this range of 69 to 72, we will proactively refill the strategic petroleum reserve. What the administration was really doing there was, was trying to put a put into the market and everything the administration has done since then. I don't think for, just to be clear, I don't think anyone is expecting the White House to suddenly turn into a, you know, a, a day trader of oil with its finger constantly, you know, poised over the button. Sure. But the body language and the, and the lack of quick movement when oil prices collapse, I think, can only help to shred any credibility that was there, that they will actually follow through on this. And it, more and more, it seems like a, a political act, a, a desire to be seen to be doing something for energy security without actually following through quickly to, to, to really do anything substantive. Liam, let's also talk about the timing of this. That's significant. We we watch the regional bank turmoil, the SVB failure, all of that happening as they're talking about the Strategic Petroleum Reserve and replenishing it. How did they link together? They were separate incidents that seemed to impact each other, or at least one more than the other. I think the link here is... Um is kind of how the Silicon Valley Bank failure affected the oil market. And if you look 
at the data that we get from the, the CFTC, which shows the position essentially of hedge funds in oil futures, what you see when SVB fails is just as we saw in other types of asset classes, people sold first and asked questions later. So you saw a huge drop in the positions of hedge funds in oil futures. Think about that another way, it's panic. Now, if you think about it from the perspective of the White House saying uh, it plans to proactively buy barrels when oil prices fall, well, frankly, when you have that kind of blood on the streets moment, when everyone else is panicking, that's exactly when a buyer with huge resources and an ability to take a long-term view should be stepping in. Although the White House nominally had this plan to stabilize oil prices with SPR purchases, it just it just didn't really uh, feel any pressing need to follow through. I want to talk a little bit about the Biden administration energy policy, because they've been pushing the green energy objectives really hard. Can the administration strike a balance between the Strategic Petroleum Reserve and having these green energy objectives on the table? Is that something that they can work together? If you go back to when um, President Biden was campaigning uh, for the presidency, uh, you know, he he had pretty much the greenest uh, presidential platform we had ever seen. Then we get the invasion of Ukraine and a reminder of um, of of how dependent we are, um, even even after the shale boom, how dependent we are on uh, global energy trade. President Biden is trying to balance these two competing objectives. Longer term, you could argue. If we get more of our energy from renewable sources that aren't linked to whatever's happening in places like Russia or the Middle East, that that is that will actually enhance our energy security. The problem is, in the meantime, we still use an awful lot of oil and gas. We still depend on those trade flows. And so, you know, it's, it's going to be a difficult balancing act. We've seen President Biden not just doing things like tapping the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, but for example, recently approving uh, a controversial um, uh, new project on the North Slope of Alaska known as, as Willow, um, which you know drew criticism from within his own ranks um, uh, for approving that. He's, he's going to have to steer a very narrow course on this. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Liam Denning covers energy and commodities. Now coming up, We'll look at how Wall Street turned from an office corridor into a fancy residential area. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. The rise of remote work during the pandemic has cut demand for office space. It's left some American downtowns feeling like ghost towns. As a result, we've heard a lot of talk of converting downtown offices into apartments. Now, we continue to watch the post-pandemic job recovery throughout the United States. But what we're finding is that the jobs recovery in New York City 
and maybe some other cities too, is unbalanced. Let's get more information from Bloomberg opinion columnist Justin Fox. Uh, Justin, New York jobs are not back yet. Where is everybody? Um, I mean, they're pretty, they're getting close, but they're still about uh, 1% short of where they were right before the pandemic. And what the funny thing is, it's not the office workers or the office jobs that have gone away. It's it's all the leisure and hospitality, um, retail, and actually government um, as well, which is mostly local government employment. And the stuff like finance, um, information, which is publishing and some internet stuff, professional and business services, those are all up in New York City. But those people, you know, aren't necessarily coming into the office every day. So they're not in the office. Why would that have a more significant impact on the economy? In New York City, especially in Manhattan, where all these people come in from other boroughs and the suburbs, if people aren't coming in as many days, there's a lot less spending going on um, at, you know, restaurants for lunch, going out after work, shopping while you're in at the office. Uh, Bloomberg did an estimate a month or two ago that it's maybe $12, 12 billion a year in lost spending, and that shows up in the retail and leisure and hospitality jobs. And it, you can feel it in Manhattan. It's like the middle of the week, it feels like it's totally back. Um, Friday especially, it really doesn't. One of the columns that you have on the Bloomberg Terminal is about this talk of converting the downtown offices into apartments. Now, I can tell you in Washington, D.C., where I am, a lot of the downtown office space is vacant and it's federal space. It's, as you mentioned, government workers who are still either working from home close to 100 percent of the time or more than half of the time. So they're trying to figure out what to do with all these great, big, beautiful boxes that are empty now that used to have offices, similar in other metropolitan areas? It turned, I mean, I, it, it's a little hard because they, they, they give the monthly jobs data down in all these categories for New York City. They don't do it for many other cities, but they do for D.C. because it's a state, basically, um, at least for statistical purposes, sure. if not voting purposes. Right. Um, That's a whole different column, Justin. <laughs> exactly. But uh, D.C. is much, much, much worse off than New York. Uh, I mean, the overall jobs are down four and a half percent instead of about one percent, like in New York City. Um, and it's just, yeah, across every single job category, except information, which is like the media um, in D.C. and some Internet stuff, everything but that is down, which in New York, a bunch of job categories are up. Um, and it, I mean, it's kind of funny because in D.C., government employment is down less than in other places. But you're right. Government workers are just not coming back. You know, in, in New York, you've had definitely in the finance sector a lot of pressure to bring people back. And I think in federal government has just been stuck on that. Um, and, and so that's interesting. You know, government employment is down more everywhere else in the country, mostly local government. Um, but in D.C., it's not down much, but those people aren't coming in, and that's having a huge effect on the city. So converting those downtown offices into apartments, as you were alluded to in your column um, in Manhattan, specifically Wall Street, actually, uh, how would that lure people back if they won't come downtown to work? Are they going to come downtown to live? Well, in, I mean, in Wall Street, that's happened. It, uh, you could say at this point it's 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 more of a residential neighborhood than an office neighborhood. It still feels like an office neighborhood because it's got these narrow streets and very tall buildings. But there are um, like 
more than 60,000 people living down in the financial district where I think in 1970 there were 800. And that's something, there were a couple, the Battery Park City was this big new development built on sort of the land, the, the dirt they dug up for the World Trade Center, that was part of it. But since the 90s, well, in the 90s, there was this really concerted effort by the city because there was a ton of vacant office space down there um, to convert, especially older buildings into apartments and it happened. And what's kind of interesting is it's this like really fancy neighborhood now, um, even though it's all these people who you know, don't need to commute to work, but have basically the best transit in the country. And, uh, and they're increasingly have restaurants and other things to go to as well. Who are the big losers? Is there any sector that can benefit and, and which sectors are struggling? Well, among sort of service sectors where there's a lot of jobs that you don't need a college degree for. It's, I mean, leisure and hospitality, and it's still down nationally too. Restaurants are almost back, but um, accommodation, hotels, and sort of entertainment is still down from where it was before. And then this grab bag category called other services, which is like dry cleaners, manicurists, all of that is also down. And so, I mean, one interesting thing in most places, another category that is up that has some very high-end jobs, but also a lot of not-so-high-end jobs is healthcare. Um, and it, it, it's up in most places. Again, in D.C., it's down, but in most places, that's up. But in New York, it's up a lot. And it, it, at one level, it feels a little unsustainable how fast healthcare employment and grown. It's like the biggest part of it is home health care services. Yeah. But on the other hand, I mean, at least given all the other service jobs that have been lost in New York City, it's been a kind of a welcome replacement. And, and you get the sense that some people have shifted from sort of hospitality jobs to those jobs. Let's talk about that shift. Is the workforce completely different now? Has the pandemic fundamentally changed the way most of us work? No, I mean a lot of those jobs are exactly the same as they were before. That's sort of the thing, uh, and and but it has impacted them. Um, I mean there are a lot fewer leisure and hospitality jobs, and 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 it's interesting at this point uh, how much of that is because I think spending on restaurants is significantly higher in real inflation-adjusted terms now than it was before the pandemic. There are just a lot fewer workers, and I think part of it is just a lot of people, when they lost their jobs and that, were sort of like, I think I'm going to do something else now, um, and, and have shifted to other fields. I, I mean, it's just it's funny. In New York City, so much of the attention, understandably, has been about high-end office workers and will they keep coming to the city and will they stay? And that's still an issue and how often people will come in is an issue and whether enough of them will use public transit to pay the bills is an issue. But in terms of who's been leaving New York City, it's it's not the high, it's it's people in the Bronx. I mean the Bronx is now the big pop is the main borough with losing population and that's the poorest borough. It's the working class borough. And I think people there are just like I, I'm not finding jobs that can pay my rent. So I'm going to move to North Carolina or Florida or wherever. So where is this going? Will the pendulum swing back? I, I mean, New York's going to be different. I, it, it's an interesting, like New York created a crazy amount of jobs um, in the last decade. But um, it feels like this those jobs to serve those people, there just aren't going to be as many of those. And so it's just an interesting question what it means for New York, for its school system, which has a lot fewer students, with, again, the biggest losses in the Bronx um, because so many people have been leaving. 
to go find better work somewhere else. Um, it, it's just weird. It's it's very different from the population loss the city had in the 60s and 70s, but it's a lot of population loss, um, and it, it's just going to be interesting to see where this goes. Yeah, we're going to watch it with you, Justin. Thank you so much for taking the time with us. Thanks for having me. Justin Fox is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Don't forget we're available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Now stay with us. Coming up, we'll pull back the curtain and take a peek at what's going on behind the scenes of the coronavirus pandemic. This is Bloomberg Opinion. You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. Let's turn our attention now to the coronavirus pandemic. And you might recall that COVID-19 was already spreading widely across the world in February and in early March of 2020, well before many Americans had gotten the message that the disease was something to take seriously. Last fall, CDC Director Rochelle Walensky told ABC News she had been trying to get more Americans vaccinated as a self-critical CDC report about the agency's messaging issues was public. I don't give up. My job is to give people the information that they need to have in order to make the safest, smartest um, decisions for their own personal health. Um, and I will continue to do that, um, whatever position I hold. Now we're learning through a report by the New York Times that staffers at the CDC's Disease Intelligence Service were pressured by the Trump administration to keep quiet about what they knew, that COVID was spreading asymptomatically. Joining us now to talk about it, Bloomberg Opinion columnist Faye Flam. And Faye, that allegation that a federal agency, particularly a science-based agency, is succumbing to pressure from the White House, that's a serious allegation, and it's also a risky one. It, it asks the question if federal agencies can be trusted. It does. And there was just a survey showing that um, a lot of people don't trust CDC. This was actually known. Um, I wrote about this in March of 2020, that the Trump administration was blatant and said Mike Pence was going to be vetting statements coming out of CDC from that point on. And I wrote that it should be the other way around. CDC should be helping make Mike Pence not make scientific errors. So how can the CDC then rebuild that trust? Well, I think we have to look beyond this particular allegation because, first of all, it's a little misleading since most of us knew about the asymptomatic spread of the disease through other scientific sources. I was writing about it. Lots of science writers were discussing this because there were non-CDC scientists doing studies and openly talking about it. So it was no secret. It was nothing that was successfully covered up. But I think the problem was that people weren't hearing the bottom line from CDC and CDC had brand name trust. And we all would have done so much better in the pandemic if they had been able to give unbiased, um, apolitical information um, from this sort of central known trusted source, rather than having people pick up bits and pieces from Twitter or from television or from their favorite podcast or whatever. 
I think that's a really important point. Like you said, the CDC did have this brand name trust, and they managed to lose it. But what I want to get down to is, was this the result of maybe the Trump administration narrative? Was it a series of of unforced errors, bungles that the CDC made that helped erode the public's trust in their own agency? It was a combination. I think it was both. I think it was incredibly damaging to have uh, the Trump administration say we're going to uh, we're going to muzzle people at CDC mm-hmm. but the CDC had already done a lot of things wrong including things uh back in February when there were scientists who were warning everybody that covid was already spreading widely around the world and we were being given a lot of false reassurance and we were just not getting what other countries were getting the other countries were getting widespread testing in february of 2020 they were getting contact tracing they were getting the people were getting a lot of help and we were getting nothing you you made a really good point there that we were getting a lot of false reassurance i also wonder if some of this isn't the need to not say i don't know you know there because there were a lot of things they didn't know we didn't know they had no way of knowing and it's not it's not exactly in the federal agency's purview any agency to stand up and go you know what we just don't have an answer to that right now it doesn't do a lot of good is that what they were trying to avoid i don't know i think with with science communication there's always a way to talk about things that might be a problem. So early on, I think, you know, it was pretty clear very early that this thing was highly transmissible and that uh, colds and flu are often spread by people before they get symptoms. So I think it wouldn't have been difficult to say um, this might be spreading from people who aren't sick or aren't visibly sick. And you can always use language to say, we're not sure of this, but we think this might be happening. We think this might be spreading pretty widely. Um, this is this is a possibility. This is a you know things that are lower risk. Still, you might need to worry about it. So there are ways to communicate science um, that that get the uncertainty across. Now, I was reading your column on the Bloomberg Terminal about this. It's a terrific column. I recommend to everybody check it out. And one of the things you say was really profound. It struck me. The U.S. government was trying to reassure the public rather than help us prepare. That's an important statement. How could they have done that better? Well, I think it would have been, think about the lockdowns. I mean, think how much less disruptive it would have been if we had had information coming to us all through February and March about the, you know, the possibility of working from a home, um, getting people sort of ready to think about how they deal with child care. We were sort of whiplashed into it. So, and businesses could have had time to prepare. Clearly hospitals didn't have time to prepare adequately. They should have been working on this from the beginning, even if it didn't. Um, turn out to be as bad as it it was it yeah. ended up being. So I think that using that time, um, it was it was could have been incredibly helpful. Faye, how does the lack of trust in the CDC manifest itself? How do you get the notion beyond the polling that we know people have lost trust in that federal agency and perhaps have lost trust in other science agencies, science-based agencies as well? How does that manifest itself? What do we do about it? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I've I got a lot of uh, outraged emails from people uh, after that piece ran because they were particularly outraged that Rochelle Walensky, the uh, CDC director, said on the Rachel Maddow show sometime in 2021 that you couldn't transmit the virus if you um, had been vaccinated, and that was the scientific community walked that back right away. Oh, so yeah. it wasn't like that that was left to stand. But I think it just, um, you know, there's a lot of sort of politicized tension. Those people were coming more from the right side of the political spectrum um, who are uh, concerned more about the overselling of vaccines. And, um, you know, the bivalent boosters have not been taken up even by people who are at high risk and would probably benefit from them. Well, we know about the shutdowns and we know about the economic impact of the pandemic itself, but let's look at the cost of the loss of trust. How has that cost the U.S.? Well, I think we had, if you look at the U.S. and compare us with other countries, you know, similarly wealthy countries, we lost a lot more people. And there are a bunch of reasons for that. But I think that has to play into it. I mean, there is no reason the U.S. should have been so much worse than European countries in terms of the, the loss of life from the pandemic. Now that the CDC is going through some sweeping organizational changes, and now we are hearing from Republicans in the House of Representatives that they want to see even more change. Is that going to be enough? What else does this agency have to do to, I don't want to say make amends, but to sort of heal that rift? Yeah, I mean, I think that there has to be some agreement between the, you know, the, the, the White House and CDC that they should have freedom to talk to the public without being out being uh, shut shut up by the, whoever is in office. But also, I think Walensky said something that was spot on that she said, you know, we were not we we are good at certain things, research and writing scientific papers. And there's sort of a long time scale for that, but that they weren't particularly nimble at jumping in and dealing with a completely novel health emergency. And so they want to restructure in a way that they would be better at at dealing with something that comes out of the blue and hits us fast. People can learn from what went wrong. And we just had, we hadn't really had a situation like this. You know, people always, they, they talk about, you know, trying to, to fight the last battle. And so being prepared specifically for another emergency exactly like this one could be sending them down the wrong track, but being better prepared to handle something that, that hits us suddenly, you know, looking more broadly, I think that's that's the direction that I hope they're going. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Faye Flam. Now, in pretty much all societies, one of the big perks that comes with wealth is the richer you are, the less you have to work. But in the U.S., there's a twist. We tend to take great pride in working a lot. A defining mark of corporate life is obsession with overwork. And the higher up the ladder you climb, the more hours you're expected to contribute. You get paid more, but you work a whole lot more, too. Beth Coet is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist covering corporate America. and She has a terrific column on the Bloomberg Terminal about this very thing, but she takes a bit of a different angle, how workaholic men are actually starting to slow down now, and that makes more room for workaholic women. Beth, tell us where the men are going. So this is really interesting. We saw the highest paid 
men who logged the most hours cut back the most on their work between 2022 and 2019. So 77 hours less, few, fewer hours worked um, in 2022 compared to 2019. They still worked the most, let's be clear here, but they they actually cut back the most. Um, and I think that's just really an interesting trend um, to see here because I think, you know, it's always more, 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 more. And there was finally a little bit of a reversion back to the mean. Has this been because of the pandemic? Has the pandemic changed this narrative and shifted how we see workaholism? I think it has. I think for a lot of people, you know, I think with this this demographic, we're seeing the same thing we've seen with so many people, really reevaluating what work means to them. Um, maybe they were traveling less during the pandemic and said, I can't go back to that kind of crazy schedule. Um, so I, I do think that that's a huge part of it. And I do also think it's worth noting that this is a really privileged group, right? Not everybody has the power, the social capital to say, hey, I, I want to work less. And, you know, my boss will comply with that because I, I have that power and authority to, to do that. In addition to closing that overwork gap, I wonder if it could also help close the wage gap between men and women? Absolutely. And that's one of the things I argue in the piece. So there's two there's two components, right? In, in the ideal world, these the men who cut back at work shift all those hours to childcare so women can work more and increase their compensation, right? That was sort of the, the ideal scenario. Mm-hmm. We didn't quite see that happen. So, so we did see men pick up more household work, but they also spent more time on leisure activities. There was a really... Um, Amusing, I'll call it uh, Stanford study that also showed that um, the there was a, a serious increase in uh, people playing golf in the middle of the week. So you can take take from that what you will. Okay. But I I, I do think that I do think that um, even if all these hours are not being shifted to household work on the part of men, it does reset the bar, right? It, it sort of resets the standard of what the ideal worker looks like. And maybe that is not one that is so tied to this notion of overwork. You mentioned how this might change the bar or change the expectation for what the ideal worker is or what the ideal work situation is. Is that something that's still evolving? Have we found it yet? Because we seem to be in it for a long time and then the pandemic sort of threw the whole chessboard on the floor. So is that still something in progress? I think it is. I think this is a start. We've definitely still seen um, in other countries the level of the the average hours worked is still significantly lower than in the U.S. So I think there is still decline. But I think it's also worth noting this has not always been the case where overwork led to higher pay. Um, This is something that sort of flipped in the 90s, um, just, of course, as educated women were really entering the workforce on mass. So, you know, this this has just not always been the way. So I do think that suggests that maybe we could revert back a little bit to how things used to be. And we're going to watch it with you. Thank you, Beth. Thank you. Beth Cohen is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. She covers corporate America. And that does it for this week's Bloomberg Opinion. We are produced by Eric Molo, and you can find all of these columns on the Bloomberg Terminal. We're also available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Stay with us. Today's top stories and global business headlines are coming up. I'm Amy Morris. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.